can turn to Mark chapter 1. It's cold outside, but it's nice and warm in here. This suit jacket isn't going to last much longer, I don't think. This morning, the question we're going to answer, along with several other supporting themes, is why did Jesus pray? Why did Jesus pray? What comes to mind when I say marriage? What comes to mind? When I say children, what comes to mind when I say school, what comes to mind when I say money? comes to mind when I say politics? And then finally, what comes to mind when I say prayer? These big ideas that I asked you about, they bring a flood of all kinds of thoughts and sometimes emotions. I want you to think of prayer that way. Because whenever the topic of prayer comes up, so much can come to mind. Emotions. And sometimes, I think oftentimes, we can struggle with guilt and conflict when we think of prayer. But just like with all these other uh, big ideas that I mentioned, there's just a whole cluster of things that's in our soul when these topics come up. Prayer is a big idea, and it has a lot associated with it. So as we just keep in mind the context as we're working our way through the gospel according to Mark, Verse 1 was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then verse 4, John appeared baptizing. And then verse 9, in those days, Jesus came. Verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. Verse 14, Jesus came proclaiming. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, follow me. Verse 22, Jesus was teaching. Verse 34, Jesus healed and he exercised the demons from many. He healed many and exercised many. And then today, verse 35, Jesus prayed. In chapter 1 of Mark, 
He packs in a lot of different things. He gives you a lot of high points. He moves from one big idea to the next big idea. And that is Mark's style. He's very um, efficient, very quick, and he packs a lot in, and it really helps us get a big picture of Jesus really fast. So a curious thought this morning. Jesus was already God. And yet, he was praying. He's praying to God the Father. God praying to God. And this might challenge our idea of prayer a little bit. I think many times we're not incorrect, but we just need to have a bigger idea of prayer. We think of prayer purely in the asking realm. A lot of times we're asking mostly about physical needs. And it's not wrong. God wants us to come and ask him about our physical needs and concerns and our circumstantial things. But prayer is also much, much bigger than that. And Jesus himself demonstrates that. So we're going to look first of all this morning with life rhythms. Life rhythms. Here we see Jesus demonstrating a rhythm of life, a way of living. Life rhythms is a tricky topic. People are so different from one another, and so our preachers should be very careful as he approaches this topic. Because we can be, a preacher can be oversimplistic and try to force people in a, a certain mold that is not appropriate for them. However, when it comes to rhythms of life, there are some principles that all Christians from all cultures and all time need to consider. And we're looking at that this morning, most obviously with the matter of prayer and how that fits into your life rhythm. And so Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So just a reminder from last week, last week Jesus was out after dark, the previous day. And then now we, hear, we read today that he is up before light. So he was out semi-late and up fairly early. Now I do recognize that depending on the time of the year this was would depend on, you know, perhaps it got darker early and got light later. Maybe it was more towards winter time. I, I'm really not sure. But I think there is a point here for us that we need to consider with our Lord Jesus Christ. He spent the day, the previous day, that Sabbath day, ministering. He was teaching in the synagogue, and then he went to Simon Peter's house. He healed his, his mother-in-law, and then they had some guests, and then they ate. And then at the end of the Sabbath, um, at sundown, at 6 o'clock, when people could move about and do things and not violate the Sabbath, they brought many sick people to the front yard, the front door there of the house, and Jesus healed many, he cast out many demons, it was a busy time, 
and the crowds were growing. His fame was spreading. His popularity was growing. And people were really attaching themselves to Jesus. Now, albeit we mentioned last week, just because the crowds were growing doesn't mean that they all believed in Jesus. So it was then, so it is today. There can be a lot of fervor and a lot of hubbub surrounding Jesus or surrounding uh, ministry, and much of it can be surface level. So it's interesting. Jesus, he gets up early before light, and evidently no one else saw him get up. By the way, he didn't have electricity. He didn't have an alarm clock. He woke up early, and he had a priority on his mind, and he quietly walks through the house. I don't envision that they had these front doors like what we do today or these side doors where when you open them, they, they're so tight that they make a noise. I expect it was easy for him to navigate out of the house quietly, walk through the town, and then slightly outside of town, there was some places he could go. But there are some hilltops or some ravines, some places he could go to be by himself. Because he knew the moment people began to stir that the crowds were going to come. But that was in conflict with a priority that he had. Now, in our house, it can be very, very hard to find quiet moments. My preferred routine is to go to bed a little bit before 9.30 and to get up around 5.30. But it seems like there's always something happening in our house that throws the routine off. It can be quite a challenge. Now, for some people, I get it. Almost all you have is quiet. But then there are plenty others to where, especially during their younger adult years, where it seems like their lives are filled with noise and chaos and lots of things going on. For some people, their quietest time of their day is on the way to work in their car. Or on the way home. And that, that's their quiet time. Use that time. Jesse and I have talked. Jesse Bohan and I, he's used that time many times as a quiet time. For some people, because of just the craziness of traffic, maybe you just need to pull in to a grocery store or a Walmart, park way out, slink down behind the wheel, and just pray. Find those quiet places and those quiet times. I'm acknowledging that for some people, that can be quite a challenge. So we talk about prayer, I want to bring our, think, think big again and think the big arenas of our life, whether it's work is one big arena, school can be another big arena, sometimes school and work are the same thing, church is an arena of our life, the neighborhood we live in and those relationships is an arena of our life. The family you live with is an arena of our life. Even the family you don't live is an arena of our life and the relationships with that. And then another arena of your life is your relationship with God. 
And the big idea we're looking at, we're seeing Jesus give us as an example, even though he was God, is that, and he was busy and the crowds were drawing to him, he kept space. He kept an arena for his relationship with God the Father. Which, by the way, that relationship with God the Father he had had from eternity past and he'll have eternity future. He has had a rich, wonderful, joyful, thrilling, meaningful, substantive relationship with God the Father and also God the Holy Spirit, the three in one. And so Jesus demonstrated even here on earth that he maintained space to have that relationship. Prayer gets a special place in the arenas of our life. At least it should. One of my favorite verses, I think you've heard me refer to it many times, Psalm 63.1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. The King James uses the word early because early has the idea of priority. Modern translations are going to use something like earnestly or or a synonym. Earnestly I seek you, God. My soul thirsts for you. I remember those days when I was playing soccer for our high school um, for a high school in Kentucky where I went, and um, there was never enough water. We'd have those Gatorade, was it five-gallon containers, and maybe one of the moms or the coach had pity on us, and he'd put ice in that and then fill it up with water. But we'd take maybe two or three water breaks throughout an hour and a half practice, and that, that Gatorade container never made it all the way through practice. And there was a desperation when you have guys who have been running around, all come together, they all stink, and they um, are all dripping with sweat, and they are very, very thirsty. And they drink so fast, they almost make themselves sick. There is an earnesty, a thirstiness of our soul for God. My flesh faints for you. Yes, I get grumpy when I'm hungry. And if I'm too hungry, just stay away from me, okay? (laughs) And so when we talk about our heart, our soul, and our relationship with God, there is an earnestness for a soul that has a good relationship with God that must get to God. I need water, I need food. The same way I need God. Now, this became one of my favorite verses in college, and really the whole chapter. But there are times in my life where I go back to this passage and I acknowledge to myself that something has happened in my soul and I don't earnestly thirst for God. I don't earnestly want to be with Him. And you do need to acknowledge that to yourself if that's the case. Say, Lord, I see that I, I, I'm not thirsting for you. I don't really want you. And I'm not really making space to be with you in prayer. 
Lord, why is that? Help me. Why has my heart grown cold? What's coming the way? And sometimes there's, there's complicated matters of human brokenness that we have to deal with. And not always our fault. Although sometimes it is just our own sinfulness flat out. I look at, as we go back to Mark here, Mark chapter 1, I look at what is happening for Jesus here as kind of like a pastor's Monday morning. One of the things that I think most of you understand is for a pastor, Sundays, even if we're just having one service, Sundays can be an exhausting time for pastors. And I know you joke that that's the only day of a week that a pastor works, but even so, it can be a very exhausting day, mentally, emotionally, even physically. And trying to care for people and show love and take on their burdens and to share their burdens, it's, it's a big deal. And so many pastors take off Mondays because they're just absolutely exhausted and sometimes just spiritually exhausted too. And so here I see Jesus, similar way, how does he handle the burden of ministry in the growing crowds? And even being out late the night before. How does he process that? How does he rejuvenate himself? Well, he does get probably a reasonable night's sleep. I don't know how much that was, but a reasonable night's sleep. And then he goes and spends time with God the Father in prayer. For sure, for those who are in a pastoral role or in a leadership position in spiritual ministry, there is an extra need for time with God. Because that is the way to process the extra extra burdens that you carry in your leadership role. But this is also a principle for every person. Life hits you with things. And life overwhelms you. Or you get hurt. Or something happens and it brings back anger that you don't even remember having. But when it happens, it comes out. It's like, what's wrong with me? Or maybe fear or anxiety comes welling forth. Or maybe the discouragement because you have another wave of physical struggle. And the way to handle that is to go to the Lord in prayer. Not just because you're asking God to take it away. Sometimes it's just because you need the presence of God. You need that exposure. It's like the old-fashioned way of developing film and properly developing the picture. So your time with God brings... The exposure to God brings into crystal crystal clear this beautiful full-color image of God, and it brings the beauties of God into full-color reality because you have a proper exposure to Him over time. And it's not just about asking and getting. It's about being and relating and deepening and having a meaningful interaction. It's interesting. Times of prayer 
can be, I can get some of the best ideas, or I can, my whole soul can shift over a time of prayer. And God begins to speak to me, and yes, it's a mystical way. I'm not going to try to define it too much, but I can be very confident that God has spoken to me. He is related to me. He has given me a hug. He has held me up. He has given me clarity. He has reminded me how he is the perfect administrator. He is the perfect shepherd. He is the perfect preacher. He is the perfect organizer. He is the perfect parent. He is the perfect counselor. And Jesus is the perfect spouse to the church. The church is Jesus' bride, and he is the church's husband. And so those realities become real and deep through a time of prayer. The struggle to be, we need to be real because a lot of folks who don't acknowledge the problem and grieve and deal with the problem and they bypass it or suppress it or don't let it be real to them and then they never really heal. See, our human brokenness, every single human being, regardless of their background, brings challenges to how they can have a good rhythm. It is a fight, a spiritual fight, a spiritual battle to have a good rhythm to feed ourselves spiritually, no matter who you are. Now, for those who have experienced some sort of trauma, good rhythm can be exceptionally hard. I read a book called Escape from Camp 14 years ago. And I think I've mentioned it to you before about one of the very few people at that time, I am not up to date on this, but very few people at that time who had escaped one of the concentration camps in North Korea. And you read the struggle and the statistics that even once they have escaped, there is a desire to go back sometimes. Because the depth of trauma and brokenness has affected their rhythm so much and their thinking, it is it's a mess trying to straighten things out, and it takes years. There is human brokenness that destroys our rhythm. It makes it very hard for us in our spiritual rhythm as well as just a responsible rhythm of life for some people to eat and take care of themselves and to bathe properly. Human brokenness affects rhythm, it affects prayer life, it affects um, taking care of ourselves physically. Human brokenness in rhythm is a very complex thing. And it's very easy for us when we don't understand somebody to say, well, why don't you just do right? And it's, that's very judgmental, very critical, and damaging to people. And so a key to understanding rhythm, and including with that, as we're talking about prayer, is understanding our human brokenness. And sometimes 
before we can have a healthy rhythm of prayer, we need to understand the brokenness that's really messing us up. Sometimes that's involved with going to a family member, coming and talking with a pastor in your life or a spiritual mentor in your life to help you talk through your brokenness. One of the challenges for many Christians, and the devil delights in tripping us up this way, is to get us to focus on our performance. And that is very dangerous because our performance is never going to be enough. And it's always a bait and switch because we, as soon as we begin to glory in how well we've done, brokenness in another way trips us up and chokes us up. Or when we do fail, then our performance is broken and then we're looking at our performance to feel good instead of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And it's a vicious cycle. And so instead of lamenting and grieving because you you don't do a good job with prayer, instead, start with the fact that Jesus is perfect in prayer for you. Take that pressure off of yourself that Jesus has already done it. He's completed the perfect life for you. And you are in that life. And from that, allow brokenness to be real to you and deal with it, knowing that you have the space in Jesus for that brokenness to be taken care of, begin to heal and process, and then from the riches of Jesus, then begin to live. Don't live trying to prove yourself or show how good you are. Instead, Know that Jesus is good enough for you. He's got you covered completely. And then in his mercy and in his grace and his love, you have the time and space to heal. Yes, you need to confess your sin, but you don't need to be distraught without hope. Life rhythms and the next there, Jesus prayed. There, Jesus prayed. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. There he prayed. He found a place and a time for prayer with the Father. I think it helps us to maybe visualize. We don't know, but let's visualize. Did he go out into a lonely stream? It says he went to a desolate place. There weren't really any actual deserts there, but it was a place that was considered somewhat barren and away from everybody. Not much was happening. So maybe it wasn't a stream. Was it on a a rock on a hillside overlooking the city? Was it down in a small ravine, maybe with a slight you know, embankment over top of him sitting there? Some place out of the way by himself, and there he prayed. Some people have done a prayer closet. By the way, if I don't know where my kids are, All I got to do is go to the bathroom and they will find me. 
So I, I don't think a prayer closet would work. All I got to do is go somewhere where I don't want them to find me, and they're going to come find me. It's especially true for Katrina, less so for me, but it does happen to me as well. But finding a place and time. Maybe you do need to get in your car, and you do need to go down to one of the parking lots here in town and just park it, slink down behind the steering wheel. Maybe you have tinted windows, so it's not as big of a deal. And pray. But there, Jesus found that desolate place, and there he prayed. I feel like uh, finding a place and time in our life to pray is like winter cleaning for us. We've been cleaning this last week, and we've gotten rid of some things. And we, Things are always changing in our house. Five kids growing all the time, doing new things, getting new things for their birthdays, old things that have been shoved off to the side for a few years and not used anymore, changing clothing sizes. Seems like we're always struggling to keep up with the arrangement of our stuff and our schedule. There's just a lot going on in our household. And for some people, that's the way their whole life feels with all the arenas of, of work and family and school or, or just the different things that I mentioned earlier and all that coming together. And it's just a challenge and it feels like you just got to all the time do some a cleanup just to keep it straight so you can do things the way you want to do them. It can be that way for us in prayer. It is a challenge, folks. But take that challenge and make sure that you're creating a space for your prayer time with God. What were Jesus' prayer requests? I don't know, it doesn't say. Mark very often doesn't give us the contents of Jesus' teaching or his prayer. However, John 17, if you want to read on your own time, is Jesus' high priestly prayer, beautiful prayer. Jesus praying to God the Father. He prayed for his disciples. He prayed for us. He prayed for the world. Beautiful prayer. Prayer is also more than asking. It's communing. It's a marriage relationship type of thing. We're time together. A married couple that doesn't spend quality time together having good conversations is going to struggle. You don't spend time having conversations with God, you're going to struggle. There is a, a deepening of relationship, a feeling of one another that happens, that as you face your day, it's richer, it's better, and you're settled. So life rhythms, there Jesus prayed, and then life expectations. Mark chapter 1, verses 36 and 37, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. So when we talk about life expectations, I want to talk about the marriage learning curve that I had, and I suspect that most married couples have. One of the things I learned, learned early on in marriage is that 
my wife would make a very low-key comment, and with that comment, expectations were attached. And I often, especially at the beginning, didn't see the expectations attached and didn't pay much attention to the comment, and that led to some collisions early on in our marriage. And it still happens every once in a while. After a period of growing into this, I did start to catch on. Uh, Early on in our marriage, though, as I was learning, we had a a young couple over to dinner with us. It was before kids, and uh, we were having a great time and talking. And I remember that my wife touched my arm and all of a sudden reminded me of something, and I just did it. She communicated without saying anything to me. And I remember that guy saying, whoa, you know, that was like... You, she communicated, but she didn't say anything. I was like, yes, I, I'm learning slowly, but, but I am learning. As a pastor, I have learned that that is the case too, that folks can make low-key comments, but there are expectations attached. Well, this is for everybody. I'm just bringing it into my arena as a way of illustrating and learning how to navigate people's expectations and serving them and caring for them and not always meeting those expectations, and sometimes I can. This matter of expectations is what is happening here with these four disciples. Right now it's just four of them. They had expectations. They were in hot pursuit of Jesus. It says, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. That means search for Jesus. This word searched is a very intense Greek word. It means to follow hard after in hot pursuit. And in this case, in Mark, when he uses this Greek word in a couple other places in his gospel, the folks who were in hot pursuit had evil intentions. And so it's a very intense word. Now, clearly the disciples didn't have overt evil intentions towards Jesus, but their expectations of Jesus were incorrect. And so that word of searching for Jesus does have a negative sense. They had a a wrong understanding of what they expected of Jesus as they searched for him. So they wake up, and as they get going, they see that Jesus is not there. The crowd is gathering there at the front of the house again like it did the night before. And where is Jesus? Implicit with them searching hard for him is that he's supposed to be there back at the house where the crowds were interacting with the crowds and healing and doing things like that. Implicit was, Jesus, why aren't you back where everybody else is where they need you? They had expectations of Jesus. And Jesus was not meeting those expectations. We talk about expectations. Expect expectations. Others will have expectations of us. We will have expectations of others. You and I will never be free of this dynamic in our lives. It can be a burden, and very often it is, and it can be a frustration, it can be a flashpoint, it can be a matter of anger, it can be a matter of disappointment, disillusionment. But there is a way to handle this expectation issue. 
and Jesus shows us how to handle it. So life rhythms, there Jesus prayed, life expectations, and finally, there Jesus went. And Jesus said to them, this is right after they told him, why aren't you coming back to the house where the people are? He said his response to them was, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went, not back to where all the crowds were, back at Simon's house. He went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The principle, the model, the example that we see here in Jesus and how he navigated expectations is he navigated them through his prayer time with the Father. He navigated the pressures of life. He navigated unfulfilled expectations and unmet expectations that others have placed on him and discerning what to do about that through his time in prayer. You will face... Decision after decision in your life in this matter of expectations. Whether it's with your spouse, whether it's with at work, whether it's with a family member, whether it's at church. You're going to face this all the time. And you're going to struggle with your expectations of other people. The way to navigate that is through your relationship with God in time in prayer. Ike's big decision. President Eisenhower, before he was the president, he was the supreme commander of the D-Day invasion. There was a lot of stress on that man during that time. And they, um, they wanted to do it when there was a full moon, so that way they could see enough. They were, they were thousands of troops were landing on the shore. There were paratroopers dropping from the air. Huge, mammoth-coordinated operation. And they wanted to do it, and they wanted to do it soon because there was pressure from Russia because Russia was saying, hey, we want you to invade from the West because we've been taking care of them from the East and you need to take pressure off us by invading from the West. And so there was pressure to do it soon before there was a big concern with Russia and keeping the Eastern Front taken care of. And so they weren't able to do it in May. They wanted to do it in May, but the weather conditions... It was a huge stressor because, you know, the weather, you know, and, you know, we need to, they navigated troops in certain ways to make Germany think that they were going to go somewhere else and invade so that way they could trick them and invade in a place where Germany wasn't expecting. And so so they skipped May and it came to June and one of his um, generals that was head of, I think, the paratroopers was... um, a man that Ike trusted. And when that man challenged him on something, he listened. And that man came to him and said, or I think he wrote to him and he said, I don't think this whole dropping of thousands of paratroopers from the sky is a good idea. I think that we're going to lose 
80% of them if we do it this way. And that was a serious thing to him. And so Ike had to weigh. He had to decide. This guy, he, he, does, he doesn't just blow steam. He gives good advice. And so Ike had to make the decision. But if I don't do these paratroopers, this whole invasion could go under. So there was some soul searching for several days. And eventually... He decided, he wrote the general back and said, I don't remember the details, but he said, we're going to maintain this operation. We're going to drop the paratroopers. I see what you're saying. I think we can do it. And history tells a story that D-Day was a wonderful success. And the losses that were projected by that general didn't materialize even close. What a big decision. Millions of lives at stake. Yes, on a smaller scale for you and I, when we have to navigate people's expectations or when we have expectations of others, it feels huge. It can be angering and frustrating. Drive us crazy. And you and I can be cavalier and proud and self-justifying in our decisions. It's interesting because Ike wrote a note and put it in his wallet um, that one of his staff saw that he did and after um, the invasion asked for it. And Ike didn't know why. But on that note... Ike took full, he wrote a note ahead of time in case the operation failed and took full responsibility for it. It was a letter that he was going to send if things failed. We can be very cavalier and proud with, we'll finish up, we're almost done. We can be very cavalier and proud and self-justifying in our decisions. People have their reasons, and they don't like you questioning them. It's just the way we are. My wife and I can be that way with each other. All I have to do is ask her a question, and she can tell I'm questioning her. All she has to do is um, question me, and I can tell that she's not happy with something or questioning why I'm doing a certain way. I get defensive. So when it comes to expectations and decisions and relationships, We need to root our balance. We need to root our our attitude and our decision in our relationship with God in prayer. There are many there are many Christians who have acted as if they are being spiritual, but they're actually being very proud. Or there's Christians who really haven't taken counsel the way they should, and they're justifying themselves. But there are also times when you've taken counsel, and you have prayed, and you still know that you're not going to be able to meet somebody's expectation. I've been there myself. 
So let's look at, um, I have three points of application. First of all, I want you to think big about prayer. We think about asking. We think about our circumstantial problems. We think about our physical problems. Continue to pray that way. But I want you to think much bigger about what your prayer time does for you than just asking. And you can be honest with God and say, God, I need help with that. Help me. And then next, make a plan. Make a plan. Look for a place. Look for a time. I understand not everybody's a morning person or not everybody has a morning uh, time that can do it. What about someone who works nights? You know, it's, it's, it's different for everybody, but you need to make a plan and create space and make an arena for your life, for your relationship with God. I'm not telling you when to do it. But I'm telling you the scriptures address you and say, make a plan, make a space, make a time. Finally, take 10. Take 10. In your bulletin, there are four uh, take 10s. Four take 10s. We can struggle with this matter of, well, how long, how long do I pray before I'm spiritual? How long does God want me to pray? Or, or the hymn says there's a sweet hour of prayer. And we sing about that. And yes, hours of prayer are sweet. But for many of us, that doesn't happen very often. Maybe you've never done it. What I want to give you is a boilerplate, a basis, a foundation, a starting point that you commit to. Take at least one of those sheets and stick it in your place in your time in your place where you're going to go, and take it with you and take ten. Commit to yourself that at least once a day you're going to do a take ten. Ten minutes. Set a timer. Use your cell phone. Set a timer. In this case, be legalistic about it so you are committing to yourself because you're creating a space and you're committing to it. And the reason I gave you multiples is because maybe you could do that multiple times a day. And you can place that take 10 at that place for that time of day. And on the and you can put, put a, a pen with that or a pencil with that. And on the back, you write things. While you're praying, write the things that come to your mind or the, the things that come up or write the things you want to remember to pray for during that time. But write all over that thing. But commit to the Lord that you're going to take 10. Now, there's going to be a day where you don't take 10. Stop worrying about your performance. Jesus has got you covered. If you're a child of God. And if you're not, go to Jesus and he will cover you. That's what atonement means. Cover. His blood on the altar of the cross covers your sin once you make that sacrifice yours. So you're going to fail. That's okay. But the point is, that in your heart, you see, that's the thing about a true Christian. You know a true Christian, even though they fail, they keep on going. 
because they had the Holy Spirit inside of them, urging them. There's a union between them and Jesus. Jesus is their brother. Jesus is also their Lord and their master, their Savior. And there's something happening in their heart. Constantly, even though they fail, God's grace is working in their hearts. And so this is a practical thing you can land on, you can stand on. Take 10. Commit to do that every day. And then, sometimes you might decide to do two take 10s back to back. So set a second timer. Set it again, another 10 minutes. And I think you will find when you are committing and creating space for time in prayer with God that there will be a warming in your heart, a stability in your soul. There will be an earnestness and an eagerness and a a great joy and thirst for the Lord that will grow more and more. Take a few minutes and respond to the Lord. I encourage you... um, Commit, take 10. I think it'll change your life. I know it will. I know you need this because the majority of us struggle with our times in prayer. If you're not one of those people who has struggled, search your heart that you're not condescending, you're not judgmental or critical. but you can take joy in those times and rejoice in them. Take a few minutes and respond to the Lord.